Let's pray together. We're going to be today in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We'll, uh, it looks like finish up that chapter today, so 1 Timothy 2. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for the blessing of fellowship. We thank you for the working of your Holy Spirit in our lives. So we thank you for how, uh, indeed, you are our teacher. And not just of uh, sort of facts and information, but Lord, you guide our hearts, you direct our hearts. You challenge us, you confront us, you confirm your truth. Lord, you empower us uh, to walk in that truth. Just as Kyle prayed earlier, Lord, without you, Lord, we'd be nothing. And so we're so grateful uh, for the gift of your spirit in our lives. And Lord, we want to be increasingly more and more responsive to his leading. So bless your word. We thank you once more for the gift of it. We pray today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to pick up today in chapter 2, verse 12. Uh, this is the second part of a two-part message. Uh, so if you weren't here, I, I might encourage you, if you didn't get a chance to listen to that sermon, I'd encourage you because in many ways, verses 8 through 15, it all sort of runs together and Paul's argument is built kind of logically, as Paul often does. And so you may want to go back and consider that uh, part one of that message. But we're going to pick up today in verse 12. And before we do, I'll remind you again of the overarching purpose of the Apostle Paul in this book uh, and the reason why he wrote this book. And it was to help young Timothy, who was sent to the city of Ephesus, to attain order in that city. Things had gotten out of order. Uh, in that church in particular, and then once they attain that order, to maintain that order. And you remember that overarching verse was 1 Timothy chapter 3, it's two verses really, verses 14 and 15, where Paul said, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing to you these things so that if I delay in coming, you don't have to just sit in your house and wait for me, you can get started. He says, if I delay in coming, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. And so, Timothy, these are the things I need you to go there to do, to put into place and to make sure they stay in place there. Now, please remember that the household of God, a lot of times we think of the house of God, the church building, we think of it that way. And so I'm really glad that the translators of our versions today have used this word household because that speaks more to the people that live in the house than the building itself. And really, that's what Paul is getting at. Is the building itself important, and does it deserve a level of respect and, and things like that? Yeah, I think it does. But in reality, whom God is really concerned is, is not the building itself, but the people that make up, that, that go into that building. That's the church. That's whom God is really uh, interested in and concerned about. The church. And so Timothy's job was going to be to go and to care for the people and to put in place some things that would be beneficial to the people. Because how those people live and act, both individually and as a congregation, how they live and act as a people and as a congregation, that's at the heart of what Paul is trying to get to. And so he begins chapter two. Chapter one is sort of some background information. This is what I'm sending you to do. Some people have messed up and they've gone this direction. I want you to go there and, and put things in order. Chapter two says, and to do that, here's what I want you to do. This is how he's going to put those things into order. And he began with, I want the church to be a place of prayer. Not the building, but the people. 
I want the people to come together and pray. Pray, he said, uh, supplications, intercessions, prayers of praise, all of those with a heart of thanksgiving. The people need to be a people of prayer. So we look at verse 1. It says, Then I urge the supplications, prayers, and intercessions, thanksgiving to be made for all people, including kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. He went on from there, and he talks. we learn about his desire, God's desire, that that would be our desire, that the people of the church would have the same heart as God has. And ultimately, what is God's heart? God's heart ultimately is found in verses 3 and 4, is that the, the lost would be saved. God cares for the lost. He desires to see the lost come to know him. And his heart's desire would be that that is our heart's desire as well. He went on in verse 8, and he began to address the men of the congregation. And he did so by pointing out two quick things of those men. Number one is that they should spiritually lead those in their care, their children, their wives, even in their place of work where they may be. If there are people in the sphere of influence of those men, then they should influence those other people for good. He uses that phrase there, the men should pray. The second thing he says about the men praying is that they should do so with an undivided heart, that they shouldn't be hypocrites. He says there that they should lift up holy hands. He talks about without quarreling, and we talked about how that could mean this idea of without quarreling with yourself, without doubting, that they would be blameless individuals that live by faith. That's the expectation that Paul had for Timothy to have for the men of that congregation. And to teach those men to walk in those, both of those truths. When we went on to verse 9, Paul transitions to the ladies of the congregation. And he wrote, beginning in verse 9, Also the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. Not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Remember that idea we talked about was if you're going to draw someone to yourself and as the child of God, you, we want to draw people to ourselves so they can go through us to God, right? Make sense? And so he says, if you're going to draw people to yourself, draw people to yourself because of your inward beauty, not your outward beauty. Let them come to you. Let them be attracted to you for that. That's that idea there of the good works. Live in such a way that doesn't seek to build yourself up by pushing somebody else down, but live in such a way that you build other people up. Live as an example so that others will say, man, that, guy, that gal there is living for Jesus. I want to live for Jesus too. And if he can do it, she can do it, I can do it. That's the context there. That's the idea there. Now, he continued in verse 11, and he said, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And we addressed that last week, but one thing that I failed to point out was sort of the significance of that opening phrase, let a woman learn. Often, as I did, we jump right to the, well, let's talk about the submissiveness part. But we, we miss this whole point that Paul makes about let a woman learn. Now, in our culture, yeah, okay, most of the women in my classes when I was a kid were smarter than the men and the boys in the classes. All the girls ruined the curve. You know, and the rest, oh, man, that girl, why is she in our class? You know, and so on. And so it may not seem revolutionary to us, but it was in the first century. 
In, in some sects of the Jewish faith, and by some I'll mean most, sects of the Jewish faith, which is where the church came out of, in the first century, it was actually considered sinful to allow a woman to learn the scriptures in some of those sects. And that had its influence, uh, should have had its influence on the first century culture. In much of the Greek culture, same concept. They wouldn't call it sin. They would just say it was inappropriate or unnecessary. Why would you have a woman learn? And yet here is Paul making this statement, let the women learn. Paul and before him, Jesus, were revolutionary in their approach to the women that came around them. And so this idea of allowing women to learn the scriptures was profoundly ahead of his time. And Paul was eager for that to occur. And so he, he tells that, he says that there to Timothy. And so despite our contemporary culture and what our contemporary culture might think of some of these instructions that we touched on last week, while those ladies were not to be the public teachers in those public gatherings, neither were they to be shut out of the learning process altogether, as was generally the case in the first century. And again, that may seem obvious to us, but it wasn't obvious to them. And so Paul makes that profound statement there. He goes on in verse 12, and this is where we'll pick up today. He says, and I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first and then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, back in verse 11, Paul used that phrase, with all submissiveness. Here in verse 12, he, said, he speaks about a woman not exercising authority over a man. I think it's important to understand a few key ideas before considering what it is that Paul actually has in mind here. One is that phrase, with all submissiveness. That's the one in verse 11. And remember that that is a phrase which could literally translate to, to be under in rank. And so again, as I said last week, it's a phrase which speaks not of ability, but a phrase which speaks of authority. It's a phrase that has nothing to do with inferiority or superiority. And so Paul is not saying here that men are better than women or that women are inferior to men. Organizations need a hierarchy of leadership. And whether that organization is a family or it's a church, or it's a military branch, or it's a society as a whole, without some system of hierarchy where there's some order of authority with members submitting to that authority, that organization would struggle with confusion and with chaos. Who's in charge here? Nobody. We all just do what we want to do. How's that tend to work out? Usually not very well. Remember the relationship that God the Father had with God the Son. We know the scripture teaches that God the Father, God the Son are completely equal in their being, and yet we know that they had different roles which were marked by the submission of the Son to the Father's leadership. You remember when Jesus came to the, his last day on the earth, really, he, said, he prayed that prayer, Lord, take this cup from me, but not my will, but your will be done. Jesus submitted himself to his Father, and yet we know that in that submission, that didn't make Jesus less than a co-equal of the Godhead. And so while on earth, Jesus assumed that subordinate role, yet he was no way lesser. 
In any organization, no matter how grand or small that organization is, there needs to be those that are raised up to lead and those that are called to submit to that leadership. Remember the phrase we learned last week, without contention. That's what that word quietly or in silence properly means, without contention. Because again, we're talking about authority, not ability. We're talking about authority, not inferiority or superiority. So Paul says then, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And as we touched on last week a little bit, just as there are defined roles in the physical, and I gave the example of my wife gave birth to our children, not I, just as there are defined roles in the physical, so too are there defined roles in the spiritual. One's not more valuable than the other. They're just different from the other. And by God's design, man has a sphere and woman has a sphere. And you think of a Venn diagram. Remember learning Venn diagrams, the two circles? I wish we had a picture. Two circles, and they kind of overlap a little in the middle. And on the outside of the circles, these are the differences. I really wish we had a thing. And where they overlap, these are the things that they have in common and where they're similar. And so like a Venn diagram, many times those spheres overlap with one another. But in many other instances, they do not, and they should not. In the last 50 years or so, and especially in the last five years, maybe the last 10 years, but in the last 50 years or so, our culture has increasingly rejected this idea of a difference in role between men and women. We have even come to the place where we're seriously debating whether there even is such a thing as men and women, whether such a designation actually exists or some well-meaning doctor made a mistake at your birth and probably shouldn't have spoke out of turn. How is he to know? How was she to know? We have seriously come to the place where we're debating these things, whether there even is such a thing as men and women. But again, we can either take our cues from culture or we can take our cues from God's word. And it seems to me we would do well to choose the latter. And so the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament, it teaches both the spiritual equality of the sexes and at the same time differing roles of the sexes. You remember what Paul wrote in Genesis 3? He said, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. The spiritual equality of the sexes. But is a Jew different from Greek? Yeah. Did a slave have different responsibilities than the free one? Sure. Even so, the male and the female. Now, two of the defined roles that Paul states are not for the ladies of the congregation, as he says here, are that they teach or exercise authority over the congregation. Now, again, that doesn't mean that a woman can never teach. I showed you the example of the book of Titus where the older women are instructed to teach the younger women. I showed you the example in the book of Acts, where Priscilla and Aquila pull uh, Apollos aside and explain to him, teach to him the way of God more accurately. Paul's focus here in 1 Timothy is in the public worship of the church. And Paul's thinking, and we believe God's, is that God has established a clear chain of authority both in the home and in the church, 
And in those spheres, God has ordained the men are to be the head and that they are to have the place of authority and thus the responsibility to lead in their own house. And they will be accountable for how they lead in their own, own house. That carries over as well into the household of God. Now, I do think we want to be careful with how we interpret this verse about a woman not exercising authority over a man, because I have observed that some, and I think well-meaning, have made some mistakes in their interpretation of what this might look like. From a conservative place, wanting to be obedient to God's word, I think they have perhaps gone too far. I think they've gone to the conclusion that what Paul is really saying here is that there should be a general submission of all women unto all men in society because of what Paul says here. I don't believe that that is the case, but I do, believe, I do know that's the conclusion that some have come to. Paul here is speaking of the sphere of the church. We know other passages of scripture, he speaks of the sphere of the home. But nowhere does Paul address the issue in regard to society as a whole, in regard to our places of business, in regard to our culture, in regard to the political arena, educational uh, realm. Nowhere does Paul speak about in those places that a woman can't have a role of leadership in those places. Paul, and thus the Lord, has not commanded that men have exclusive authority in the area of politics, business, all those other things that I've just mentioned to you. We presently, we have two women that have announced that they're seeking their party's nomination to become president of the United States. Now, you may not choose to vote for either of those women, but it shouldn't be based on women are not allowed to have authority in our society. That is not what the Apostle Paul was teaching. Paul is speaking of a different arena of society altogether. He's speaking of the church. Secondly, Paul is not making the case that every woman in the church is under the authority of every man in the church. Again, he is referring to those who are called to lead the church, pastors and teachers and the congregation's elders, which we'll talk about next week in chapter 3, as Paul does. Those are to be from among the men of the congregation, and the women and the other men are called to respect their authority. Male or female, we tend to not be big fans of authority and submission to authority. Amen? We're not big fans of it. People can tell me what to do if I agree, but I don't want to hear what you have to say if I don't agree. Citizens of our society do not have the same respect for their government authority as they once did. Would you agree? Yeah, we like it if our guy's elected or gal's elected, but I don't know, oh, the world's going downhill when the other guy gets elected or gal, and vice versa. Students no longer have the same respect for their teacher's authority, nor their parents. Children do not have the same respect for their parents. Employees do not have the same respect for their employers. People do not have the same respect for law enforcement officials. In just about every arena of our society, respect for authority in that arena has waned. And I can't help but think it's a part of a broader attack on authority as a direct strategy of the enemy. As the enemy seeks to destroy our society, by that I mean the devil, as he seeks to destroy our society as a whole, as he seeks to fashion us into individuals that reject all authority in our lives, and then ultimately we reject the authority of God 
in our lives. I can't help but think it's all part of that strategy. And so this vocal cultural challenge regarding a text like we're looking at today, I think it all must be seen in its true context. context. That it's not just a struggle between men and women, it is a struggle with the issue of authority in general. And we need to be really careful that we don't find ourselves on the wrong side of that struggle. Now, does this mean, this passage here, mean that all speaking or teaching of women is necessarily a violation of God's order in the church? Again, I don't think it does. But at the very least, it requires that whatever speaking or teaching is done in the church is done in submission to the men that God has appointed to lead that church. And I think that's a conversation that well-meaning believers and followers of Christ should be having. Now, if you look to verse 13 and 14, Paul is now going to present, present his reasoning for the instruction that he gave in verse 12. So in verse 12, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man, rather she is to remain quiet. Now he's going to explain why he is saying that. He says in verse 13, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Eve was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. He provides two reasons for the instruction that he gave in verse 12. And the first thing that we should take notice of is both of those reasons are grounded in his argument for the... for the, his argument for the ordering of authority in the church, both of those reasons are grounded in the creation account. The first one, upon the order of creation before the fall, that is that Adam came before Eve. He says, for Adam was formed first and then Eve. Now, before dissecting Paul's argument, we would first draw our attention to the fact that by basing his argument in the order of creation, as he does, Paul is ruling out any thought that this is some matter of local culture, which is what some have said. Look, Paul, he was writing, he wrote what he wrote, but it was really just to deal with the first century. It was really just to deal with that city of of Ephesus. They were having a problem. Paul said what he had to say there. But remember, Paul says, these are my instructions as they are in every place, in every household of God, in every city. And so here, in his, case, in his argument that he's making and the uh, support for that argument, he goes all the way back to the creation account. That's 4,000 years earlier than when Paul himself was here on the earth. That should put to rest this idea that this was only a first century issue or that this was only an Ephesus issue. He bases his argument in the order of creation. That makes this a universal issue. So the first reason that he gives for the male authority in the church is, he says, the order of creation. Adam, who is man, first man, he reminds us, was created first. Adam was the one given original authority on the earth, both to govern it and to care for it. Genesis 2, it says this, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That was his instructions. Eve wasn't even formed yet when those instructions were given to Adam. Genesis 2 goes on to tell us that Eve, that's the woman, was created after Adam and that she was, that she was done so. She was created with the specific purpose of supporting her husband in the task that God had given him to do. So you look at Genesis 2.18, it says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
And so the man was called to the task of leading and directing. His wife was to serve as his helpmate, that he might accomplish those tasks. And so here, Paul, he presents his first argument for why he did not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over man because of his conclusion that to do so would be a violation of God's original design for the sexes in the created order. He says Adam was created first, then Eve. Now, the second reason he gives, we're going to get to right after this sip. <laughs> See, you were thirsty too. The second reason Paul gives also goes back to those original actors, Adam and Eve. And so again, he says, I do not permit a woman to teach, exercise authority over man, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So his second reason for his command in regard to, is in regard to Eve's having been deceived and as a result having become a transgressor. Now, of course, here we're referring to the fall, the fall as it's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3. If you're not familiar, the fall refers to man, and at this time I'm using man like mankind. It refers to mankind's decision to disobey the command of God and to proceed forward in rebellion against that command of God. That's what the Bible uh, labels as the fall. That Paul calls a transgression. We commonly use the term sin. In this case, I think it's interchangeable. The command is recorded for us in chapter 2. It's the same passage that I referenced a moment ago, a, a different verse, but beginning in verse 15, we're told there that after creating Adam, that God put Adam into the garden, that he gave him instructions to work that garden and to keep that garden. Verse 15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Immediately following that commissioning, God gave Adam this command. He said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Again, you'll notice that that command that God gave Adam, Eve wasn't even formed yet. She's formed in verse 22. That was verse 15, 16, and 17. As I mentioned earlier, the fall is a violation of that command. And that's going to occur in chapter 3, where we're told, and Paul corroborates for us, that Eve was deceived by the serpent. She took of the forbidden fruit, that the command in verse 15 of chapter 2 said she shouldn't, and she gave some of that fruit to her husband, who also partook of it. He also sinned there. I do think it'll be helpful for us to consider the passage. Look at, we'll put it up on the screen. Genesis chapter 3, you can go there if you want to, in your own Bibles, but we'll put it up there. Genesis 3 says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, in actuality, he didn't. God didn't say you can't eat of any tree in the garden. What he actually said, going back to chapter 2, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So God said... You can have everything but this one thing. And the serpent, who we know portrays Satan, he portrayed it as if God were saying, you can't have anything. He, he lied to her. He twisted the truth and lied. 
That, verse, that Genesis 3 passage goes on. Now, the woman said, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, is that accurate? Not 100%. It's close. I'll give you, I'll give you a D. You came to class, you tried, you know. So uh, you're close, but you're not completely accurate. She got the first part right about not eating of the fruit of the tree, but then Eve added something that God never said. And I don't know if Adam added it and told her, but either way, in her statement there, we see that they added or she added something to it, and that's that phrase, neither shall you touch it. Now, at first glance, you might look at that and you'll say, well, that's not so bad. Better to add a little than take away a little. But the reality is this. Adding man-made rules and labeling them as God-made rules, it opens us up to a new line of attack from the enemy. Remember, the enemy initially came at Eve challenging whether God was good or not. God's keeping something from you. What kind of a good God would do that? That was his first attack. Now the attack is going to be something like this. Look, you, you will die if you touch it. You won't die if you touch it. Here, touch it. Try it. And so she touches it. See, nothing happened. So you're not going to die. And if you're not going to die to touch it, then surely you're not going to die to eat it. Go ahead and eat it. You see, by adding to the word, what the enemy then was able to do was to get, and then finding out that that, that addition wasn't true at all, what the enemy was able to do was to get her to doubt all of the word, or at least other portions of the word. It's the danger of religion. Follow these rules and you'll be okay. And the reality is they're man-made rules, they're proven to be false, and then you doubt God-made rules as well. It's a dangerous thing, and it's what the enemy is doing here. He does it, I think, in our lives. He does it here with Eve. Now, to be completely faithful to the text, that little scenario that I shared with you isn't actually presented to us as the exact line of argument, but I, I do think it makes sense. Here's what we are told. The very next statement to Eve that the, the serpent made was to call God a liar. Genesis 3, 4, he says, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You will not, God said you're going to die. That's not true. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The devil tricked Eve to trust him instead of God. The devil showed her how good the food was. He appealed to her flesh, that the taste of the food, it would be more important to her than obeying and believing God. The devil convinced her of how delightful it was to her eyes. That's the lust of the eyes. Boy, that food, oh, it's so more appealing than obeying and believing God. The devil deceived her into believing that by partaking of this food, she would become like God. That's the pride of life. And it's an, that's an example of the enemy's age-old attempt to appeal to our pride as he seeks to entice us to sin. And the reason I'm spending as much time as I am looking at the fall here, because I think the enemy, 
this is the enemy's age-old method of temptation. He appeals to our flesh, he appeals to our eyes, he appeals to our pride. John, the apostle, late in his life, he actually touches on this. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the desires of, or the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Forever. The devil's method is to get us to trust him rather than God. It's a deception. And it always ends up further distancing us from God. Now, we know that Eve was deceived. You, you get that impression from Genesis 3. We know for absolute certain that Eve was deceived because Paul says so in the New Testament. There's an old expression. It goes something like, uh, I don't remember how it goes. That the best commentary on the Old Testament is the New Testament. And so Paul adds his comment on the Genesis 3 passage, and he tells us categorically that Eve was deceived. He says in 1 Timothy, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived. So his first argument for his command here in 1 Timothy was the order of creation. His second argument for his command is the reason for the fall. Eve was deceived, she partook of the fruit, and as a result, death entered into the human race. Now, we know that Adam also partook of the fruit. And it's interesting, as you make your way through the New Testament, particularly Paul's writings, the one who is ultimately held responsible for the sin of those two is Adam. It's Adam's fall. Remember, the Puritans would teach their children the alphabet? Letter A, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. No mention of Eve. Adam is the one that is held responsible. You look at Romans chapter 5 in particular, and Paul makes that very clear. Both of them sinned in the Garden of Eden, and Eve clearly sinned first, and yet the Bible never blames Eve for the fall of the human race. Instead, it places the responsibility for the sin squarely upon Adam. God gave Adam the command, and he passed that command on to Eve, but it was his responsibility to lead because he was the one that was placed in authority. Adam had an authority that Eve did not have, therefore he had a responsibility that Eve did not have. And therefore we see him being the one that is held accountable. In this interaction, Eve acted independent of Adam. And she allowed the devil to convince her, to trick her. Instead of going to her head, her husband, the one who had given her the instruction. Remember, God gave it to Adam, Adam gave it to her. She proceeded without him, she fell into transgression, and ultimately she led others into transgression. So, is Paul's point that women aren't to be the spiritual leaders in the church because they're more susceptible to deception? Some have said that. It could mean that. Paul doesn't categorically say it's not that. And since Paul doesn't say it's categorically not that or is that, I don't think we should come out and say it means this because Paul doesn't very, very clearly say it either. It's his point that because Eve was deceived and sinned, that all women now have to suffer the consequences of her decision, and that one of those consequences is that they're not allowed to lead in the church. I don't think that's the case either. And I'll say this, Paul doesn't definitely say that that's the point that he is making. Maybe that's his point, 
but he doesn't develop that argument beyond what he says here in verse 13 and 14, so we want to be careful that we don't develop his argument for him. The truth is, the more important thing that we have here is the what of what Paul says, and not so much the why for what Paul says. Paul instructed Timothy to go to Ephesus to attain and to maintain order. And one of the means by which he was, uh, he was to do that was by not allowing the women to teach or to exercise authority over the men. That was the what that Timothy and us were to obey, even if we don't fully understand the why behind it. Now we come to verse 15, and this is perhaps the clearest verse in the entire passage. Paul says, yet she will be saved through childbearing. Okay. If they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. And in reality, this is regarded as one of the most difficult passages in the whole Bible. And so, since it is such a difficult passage, as you might imagine, there are a whole host of understandings as to what this text means. Some have concluded that despite sin having entered into the world through a woman, that what this verse is teaching is nevertheless it's a promise to Christian, that Christian women will be safe as they undergo the process of childbirth. They'll be saved. They won't die while giving birth. Now, in my opinion, it can't mean that, as there have been many good and godly women that have sadly died in the process of giving birth. And conversely, there have been many ungodly women that have survived uh, childbirth. So that interpretation just doesn't seem to fit, but it is one you may hear. Some see this word saved as referring to eternal salvation, eternal life, salvation. Have you been saved, brother or sister? And those that hold this view have concluded a few different things regarding that salvation. Some have quite simply concluded that a woman will be saved spiritually, eternally, go to heaven when they die as a result of giving birth. Now that runs square in the face of everything else Paul and others have taught us and written about God's, uh, God's plan of salvation and grace and the work of Jesus Christ. Don't worry about the work of Christ, just have a baby and you'll be good, you'll get to go to heaven. That doesn't seem to make any sense, and yet that is a common understanding of this passage. I don't think one that has really been worked out too much, but nonetheless. And so not to mention the fact that there are plenty of women that cannot or will not ever get pregnant. Well, what about them? They don't get to go to heaven? Like That doesn't work. It's, it doesn't seem to fit. Some have similarly concluded, similarly concluded that Paul is talking about eternal salvation, but not, about, not as a result of whether a woman gives birth or not. Those that hold this understanding of verse 15, they hold that the birth that is being referenced there is the birth. And it could be worded that way in the Greek. And thus they're talking about the birth. What do you think is the birth? The birth of the Messiah, right? It's not your birth. You're a nice guy and we're glad to have you. Uh, but we're talking about the birth. We're talking about the birth of the Messiah. And again, in the original language, it could read that way with sort of that emphasis on that word, the. The reference then would be that Paul is talking about here is the person giving birth is Mary, and the birth that is occurring is the virgin birth that, is brought, that brought forth God's Messiah. So the thinking would be something like this. Even though women were deceived and they fell into transgression, starting with Eve, women can be saved by the Messiah, whom God will allow a woman to bring 
into the world. The only problem I really see with that argument is that the Bible reveals that men are also saved by that same Messiah. And so why sort of limit it just to, but the women will be saved because of the Messiah. That doesn't, but maybe, maybe I'm missing something there. I think the solution for understanding what Paul is getting at here, this is a hard saying of the Apostle Paul. It's recognizing that the phrase or the term saved doesn't always refer to heaven. It doesn't always refer to salvation in our Bibles. Sometimes the term saved is more akin to the word that we use, sanctification. That process of growth that happens in our lives, this side of heaven as we're making our way there. And it's used many times that way in the Bible. And so I think that's what Paul is getting at. Because salvation has a much broader scope in the New Testament than simply going to heaven when we die. It's that whole process, not just that single definitive moment when we repent. It's that whole process of change that God does in our lives. Again, what we call sanctification. And in my opinion, that's the sense of this term saved that, that Paul has in mind here in verse 15, that the woman will be saved through childbearing. And so, yes, the primary role of a woman may not be the role of teaching in God's church, but that in no way negates the important role that God has for the ladies. And giving birth and then raising those children in faith, love, holiness, and self-control, that's one of the ways in which a woman demonstrates obedience to her God-given identity. And of course, we know some women will not have children because of medical reasons or because of singleness or the like. But for those who can and do, childbearing can be a wonderfully unique way in which a female follower of Christ can fulfill her God-given role for his kingdom. And I think we make a huge mistake if we erroneously conclude that because a woman's ministry is often private and in the home, that it's any less important than that which is more public. That wasn't Paul's understanding at all. God has called moms and dads, but in a special and unique way, God has called moms to the eternal task of pouring into their kids the things of faith and love and holiness and self-control. And I would add, I think that, that he has called us as a church to pour those things into the children of this church. And again, many times the primary responsibility for that, the day-to-day -day in and out of that, it falls upon the moms. And it's a role that is not to be taken lightly. And it's a role that's not to be put aside. And you know what? I'm not, I'm not going to be lesser. I'm not going to sit around here with the children or whatever while important work is being done elsewhere. It is important work that God has raised women up uniquely to do. And I think that's Paul's point when he makes that statement. It's sort of to balance the entire argument about the role of women in the congregation. Is that clear? <laughs> we'll continue to mull over it, I'm sure. But I do believe that that's what God would have for us. And so let me close our time in prayer. We're going to sing as well. So, Father, we believe you are infinitely wise. And we believe you know. And Lord, we freely admit there are, there are portions of this passage that we don't fully understand and we're, we're doing our best to take our educated, uh, more than a guess, but just sort of working our way through the rest of your word to try to understand your will. And so, Father, I pray that uh, with open hearts we would receive.
And then as I prayed earlier, Lord, I guess I might say coincidentally, Lord, that we would rely on your Holy Spirit to guide us and direct us. Lord, if there's an attitude of any of our hearts, men and women, that is sort of uh, apart from you, distant from you, unwilling, Lord, kind of turning our shoulder from you. Lord, by your grace, would you draw us back to yourself? And would your love sort of overwhelm us? And we know that God's plans for us are good and that he loves us abundantly. You love us abundantly. And so bless your word. Bless this church. But as we seek to walk in your ways, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.